Much Ado About the AQ, Episode 6, An Editorial Decision. Welcome to episode six of Much Ado About the AQ, uh, the much-awaited finale of the the Via trilogy. Highly unlikely. The third <laughs> part of it, uh, <laughs> apparently. Um, I'm uh, Joe Payne, expert to a layman, layman to the expert. Um, here again to talk about the authorship question of Shakespeare, and uh, with me as ever, Dr. Christian Taylor who is on point 12 of 31 on his list of things to say about dead earls. It's, it's a very specific list that he has. Um, and with our preamble today, um, just a few little bits, uh, a few thanks, a few other things. Um, how's your week been on Twitter, Dr. Taylor? Uh, pretty uneventful. I've had some uh, kind of meaningful interactions with various people who've been massively supportive of the, uh, the podcast and my endeavours to... Uh, you know, kind of post meaningful and interesting things about Shakespeare online. So yeah, it's been really very nice, very benign environment, Twitter. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, I too have had a fairly chill week on Twitter. Um, I mean, as far as I can tell on Twitter, there is there is very rarely any reason to be upset. Um, so a um, few shout outs this week uh, from us. My, my first one is from uh, an email. Um, thank you to Ron, um, Ron Roffel himself, who has... Um, been emailing a couple of times with some really interesting stuff that he's uh, he's put out there. I've um, I've thoroughly enjoyed reading your emails, and I've been having a read through. And actually, my um, my reading this week uh, is from one of your emails. Um, it's a fantastic essay uh, by um, Thomas Rainier, uh, "The Law in Hamlet's Death, Property, and the Pursuit of Justice." Um, very much worth a read. Uh, any other shout outs? Um- Subsequent to um, our uh, podcast and various things that we posted, I think last week, uh, Daniel at Alacrities um, sent a kind of lo- lots of uh, responses to us, um, kind of food for thought type um, links. So thank you very much, Daniel, as ever. I uh, hope you enjoy the podcast and uh, doing your plumbing. Um, and then another kind of really um, supportive member of the uh, Twitter sphere is Kate Cassidy. So uh, I've remembered your name uh, this time. Forgive me. Uh, I didn't want to get the name wrong, which would be even worse. But um, yeah, Kate, uh, shout out to Kate Cassidy, author of The Secret Work of an Age. And I just wanted to mention one thing on the Baconian front. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a Devere episode, right? Um, but in digging around and, and looking at matters Baconian and trying to work out what my position there was, which is kind of an evolving thing to give a politician's answer, I did notice with a degree of um, interest on my part that uh, Sir Francis Bacon was nephew to William Cecil. Okay. And that would make him related to De Vere-ish because Cecil was De Vere's father-in-law. And in a very good podcast that I also recommend, which is a James Dellingpole podcast where he has a conversation with Alexander Waugh um, about the authorship question. It's, it's a very, very detailed 90-minute podcast, well worth a, a watch. It's on YouTube, and I think it's on um, James Dellingpole's Twitter feed. Um, uh, uh, Mr. War d- does, um, you know, talk about um, the, the, the Baconian influence on, on the Shakespeare canon. Obviously, he sees De Vere as the primary 
or the prima mobile, if you want to be uh, a Baconian. Um, but he says basically when um, De Vere dies in 1604, the person who took on the, the project was, was Sir Francis Bacon. And I just thought it was interesting, once again, that when we go looking for any of these people, De Vere is part mm-hmm. of that environment. He's just always popping his head up. He's always um, we always recommend uh, Alexander War and anything um, that he puts out there is always worth a watch uh, or a listen. And um, we hope he recovers swiftly from his current illness and uh, wish him very much all the best. Absolutely. Um, just a, a quick note from me as well. Um, we've had uh, a few pieces of contact about the Tudor Prince series that um, Edward de Vere um, uh, was related to Elizabeth I. Um, it is something we're looking into. We'll definitely do an episode on it later. Mm. Um, but please, uh, call your jets. Don't get too annoyed about it. We'll, uh, we will come back to it. Yeah, th- th- this splits the Oxfordian community, apparently. It's the one thing that will just kind of split the room. Um, yeah, so it's either the theory that uh, De Vere was the son of Elizabeth and or subsequently then her lover and the father of the other Southampton. Mm. So it all gets, if, if people out there know the Ernest Jones reading, uh, not the jeweler of the same name, uh, the Ernest Jones <laughs> reading of Hamlet, which is the Oedipal uh, theory, that would go some way towards explaining some of the shenanigans in the play. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've read an interesting theory that involves reading the sonnets in reverse order, but we'll take a look at that later. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting line of argument. I'm not too clear on what that would consist of, but hey-ho, we'll, we'll, we'll take anything on, won't we? Yeah, uh, certainly. We'll come back to that. But on with, um, on with De Vere. Okay, so we got to point 11 last time, and we're 10 minutes into this, and we haven't done a single one, so I'm going to try and move with a degree of um, swiftness and expedition. Um, right, so... You know, we, we, we're always teaching Hamlet. Joe and I teach Hamlet. We're, we're well into it with our <laughs> upper six at the minute. And um, we were actually talking before the recording about uh, meta theatre and meta drama and how meta a play this is. You know, De Vere was a patron of uh, several acting troops and actors. Uh, his father had had a company called the Lord Oxford's Men. Uh, De Vere had a Lord Oxford's Men and a Lord Oxford's Boys. Uh, which might explain some of the in-jokes about the boy acting companies in uh, in Hamlet. But Hamlet in the play organises his own little kind of court entertainment. Uh, parenthetically, we might note that um, it is believed that all of the plays of Shakespeare, uh, or at least um, the, the major ones, were performed at court um, before Elizabeth or at the Inns of Court before they made it to the public theatre. Um, if you know more about that, do, do kind of contact us. Um, but Hamlet organises a play at Elsinore called The Murder of Gonzago, uh, which is from, from an Italian source that I don't think the Arden edition has managed to trace, but what of it? Um, and then into that, he inserts some lines that become the mousetrap. And um, this is an interesting point because it kind of speaks to um, Oxford's own interests and, and his links to um, theatre and so on and so forth. Um, uh, again, I'm quoting from the air book, E-Y-R-E, uh, page 70 onwards. He says, from Revel's office accounts, De Vere was included in lists of courtiers <clears throat> involved in providing entertainments for the royal palaces, including the staging of plays, page 70. And from 1580 on, De Vere, quote, revived his father's acting company, The Lord Oxford's Men, page 71. So just more evidence that, you know, De Vere was heavily invested in the theatre and what goes on in Hamlet speaks to what was going on in De Vere's life. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm trying to find the source for the murder of Gonzago. If I find one, I will report him. Right. So it is more and more now like the Joe Rogan podcast, or as we've taken to call it, the, the Joe Rogan Josh. Yes, the, the Josh Rogan Josh podcast. The Josh, the Josh Rogan Josh podcast, that thing, yeah. Um, right. That, that was we love a curry over here. We, we, we're here we're actually planning one soon. Yes. We can't invite you, but, you know, just so you know, we'll be having one. Just let us know what your favourite curry is, though. We, we do actually want to know that. Yeah, that, that'd be a good one. I'm, I'm a might, Danzac man. Yeah, I'm more of a Boona meats, uh, like a creamy korma. Um, but, you know, that's, that's Tuesday night. Um Okay, point number 13 is just a single quotation. Uh, De Vere's entire adult life was spent in London, devoted to writing and producing for the stage. Um, now, obviously, the Stratfordian antennae will be twitching at that because they'll say, well, our guy was also heavily invested in the stage, you know, the Lord Chamberlain's men and subsequently the King's men. Uh, but I do think the verbs here are important, writing and producing for the stage, not simply managing. Um, so, number 14, the, the fishmonger taunt in Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2, Line 176. Um, people love this. The kids we teach love it. You know, calling yeah. an old guy a fishmonger, it, it just sounds improper. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit naughty. Mm. Um, well, apparently this is a reference to, guess who? Lord Burley, William Cecil. Okay, because we've, we've established in a previous, uh, last week's podcast, that the Stratfordian take on... Um, Polonius is that he's William Cecil, a caricature of Lord, Lord Burley, William Cecil. Um, so what the hell is the fish link? Well, um, Lord Burley tried unsuccessfully, we are told, to promote fish eating on Wednesdays as well as Fridays. Quoting Eyre, page 81, as a Lincolnshire man, Burley was trying to revive the fortunes of the declining East Coast fishing industry. End quotation. <laughs> so it seems as though Cecil was actually mad. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll grant you, quite possibly. Yeah. Um, the the only reference, just to cut back in again, um, the the murder of Gonzago, probably a reference to a real murder. Uh, Luigi Gonzaga, um, not Luigi Mario. Mm. Um, Luigi Gonzaga murdered the Duke of Urbino in 1538, and uh, most people seem to agree that's what it's based on. But there's no original text. So if that were to be the source in, in inverted comma text or historical events and mm. in which country did that take place uh well that would most likely be in italy italy you say oh okay well, do, does the italianate earl have any links to italy mm. established that may, maybe would. a little bit um yeah. i mean surely the man of stratford must have gone there maybe well i'm going to pretend to be a stratfordian well well you see what happened is uh strati bill sat down at the mermaid tavern of an evening and there was a merchant from Venice there and they had a long conversation about this chap called uh, Gonzago and he said he'd done his wife in and that's how it all happened and yes uh, the old um, BDS decided that that was the perfect thing to reference in his play yeah. about Denmark yeah absolutely right why, why would you not I mean you know it's a Danish play but you can put Italy in it's, it's Europe right it's all the same yeah. yeah okay you can see the problems with that um, okay point 15 um, the difficulties De Vere experienced Air rights in consummating his own marriage with Anne Cecil point to an uneasy parallel with Prince Hamlet's bungled courtship of Ophelia, page 109. Um, now, I think you have to do some digging here, and I do remember reading up on this, but essentially, not only was the marriage between De Vere and Anne Cecil uh, difficult because of the alleged cuckolding and the child who'd been born uh, potentially of doubtful parentage and whatnot, 
Um, but, you know, by all accounts, uh, Devere and his wife were not immediately intimate and there were problems. Now, I just think this is, I mean, 400 years on after the, the guy's dead, I, 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 it feels undignified to kind of like pry into that kind of thing. That's a highly mm. personal matter. But apparently, given that the court was a far more open place and if you were a, a male earl or a duke or a king, you were expected to produce an heir, I think people did actually take an unhealthy interest in, in, in the sex lives of the rich and famous. Um, so if anybody else knows anything about that, uh, email or, or, or go to the Twitter accounts and, and let mm. us know. Yeah, well, we'll uh, list those at the end. Indeed. Uh, point 16. Uh, Stratfordians always insist on a late date for the composition of Hamlet, allowing their Midlands pleb time to mature, given his lack of any university learning, foreign travel to Denmark, or experience of life at court. However, and this is linking into point 17, as I'm sure you're aware, topical allusions in Hamlet, air rights, would support a date of writing, composition, as early as 1587 to 9. That would make De Vere 37 and Shakespeare only 23. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting how many of the Stratfordian arguments rely on them just assuming things, isn't it? Mm. There is a website, and I found that it's blocked on the school account for obvious reasons. And maybe I was giving them the wrong uh, address, but I believe it's called www.datingshakespeare.com. And it just—it <laughs> was just like flagged straight away. No, you can't go there. You can't date dead playwrights. Um, and it is it especially is, given we don't know where his body is. Well, this is going to be something else we've got to <laughs> we'll, address. Yeah, we, we will that. come back to that. He's a monument without a tomb, isn't he? Uh, per the first folio. Um, yeah, we'll come back to that. But. Um, yeah, um, uh, brain fart. What was I saying? Sorry. Uh, you were saying about <laughs> dual brain fart. Completely, completely <laughs> lost it. That's entirely my fault, one hundred percent. I just brought up the fact that he didn't um, have a bear body. with us, dear listener. Yeah, bear with us a second. Um, um, it was um, oh the, the dating, the yeah, dating yeah. of the place. Dating Shakespeare. Yeah, we yeah. can't we can't date him can't because date he don't have a, have a corpse. Yeah. So the dating Shakespeare website, which is a brilliant idea. The I'm, I'm leaving all this in, by the way. Huh? I'm not editing this out. <laughs> no, it's all in. This is it, warts and all. Yeah. Yeah. If you go to that website and you pull up any of the brilliant PDFs that are there on any of the 36 or seven plays in the canon, um, the, the, the chap who runs it, who is an Oxfordian, a very, very good scholar, um, yeah, he demonstrates that, for example, with Macbeth, you, 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 could, you could pick pretty much any date between the late 1580s and 1611 uh, as a date of uh, composition. Not performance, composition for... Uh, Macbeth. Uh, on the Hamlet front... Um... Uh, we will actually have an episode on the dating of Macbeth uh, coming up soon. We've got an interesting... Right. A colleague here yes, uh, has something interesting to add into that. He does, yes. He's got a personal uh, interest in this and he will be press-ganged into performing. Yeah. Because um, he's a bit reluctant, you see. He's got um, a bit of radio voice in either of us as well. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it's like Brian Blessed, but three <laughs> octaves lower. <laughs> <laughs> and and less Brian Blessed. And less, <laughs> less frenetically Yorkshire. Yeah. Um, but, yeah... This is something I see constantly. You know, like, I mean, sorry to segue, but um, Stratfordians um, claim, you know, relentlessly that Macbeth is a 1606 play uh, based on, for example, all, all the stuff about equivocation in the drunken porter scene. The problem is the drunken porter scene wasn't written by whoever Shakespeare was. That's a later interpolation. Um, we, the, which they do accept, by the way, while they, still yeah, claiming they that. They simultaneously <laughs> accept that. Yeah. And, it's and, Schrodinger's evidence. It is, isn't it? It's there. It is not there, but it is there. Yeah, it's, um, it's evidence when it was written, but it wasn't written by Shakespeare. Exactly. It's just, you know, I, I can't do the mental gymnastics. But 
Um, yeah, anything to do with equivocation could date the play right back to the 1570s and 80s. Uh, because Jesuit priests, when put on trial, would use equivocation as a tactic to, um, well, avoid death. Um, the, 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 the trial of Garnet is referenced a lot by Stratfordians, but a more um, um, apropos and apposite reference would be to uh, Campion's trial, which was in the 1590s, mm. I think. Um, yeah, there's, there's loads of ways in which Macbeth is, is kind of consistently said to be a late play, because... That benefits the the, the the Stratford guy who was born in 1564. Levere was born in 1550. There's a, there's a big difference there. Um, and I've had it put to me by my students. Well, Marlowe would have been the same age. So if Marlowe wrote Hamlet, he would have been 23, the same age as Shakespeare. What do you think to that? And I always say, well, he went to King's. Hmm. He went to Cambridge. And he, he was a remarkable 23-year-old. Okay, uh, He wasn't just, um, sorry, I'm going to say it again, the Midlands malt merchant. Um, right. Number 18, um, the, this is a direct quote from the air book, uh, page 110. The soldier Bernardo's description of a bright star, I think that's in Act 1, has been mm-hmm. identified as a supernova observed in 1572 by the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, who I believed had the um, metallic nose. Yes, he did. Yeah, because of, of dueling. Um, so there would be um, internal evidence from Hamlet that gets you from 1601, or whenever the Stratfordians say it was written, to the 1570s. Uh, and yeah, it would have been kind of a very precocious kind of 20-odd-year-old who wrote Hamlet. But, um, you know, we do meet those every day. We meet them here in our uh, our teaching at this fine establishment. Yep. Uh, when, yon, when yon same star that's westward from the pole had made its course to illumine that part of heaven, mm. where now it burns. Yep. Is the, is the reference. There it is. Um, and, and, and again, the, the only thing um, our antagonist could do is say, well, you know, clearly that's not a direct reference because it doesn't say supernova or Taiho Braha or whatever his uh, name is. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, but that's because it's drama, isn't it? Yeah, uh, when, it, it would be a completely insane <laughs> tangent to um, say, um, yes, that was um, <laughs> that bright star. That was the supernova that Tycho Brahe mentioned, isn't it? Yes, quite. Uh, whilst talking about the fact there is a ghost on the battlements. <laughs> imagine. Yeah, imagine if the ghost had kind of um, addressed Hamlet and said, I might, on a purely Calvinist reading, <laughs> have come from hell. However, if you're a bit more liberal in your theology, I might be from purgatory. <laughs> yeah, that, that is also not really credible. Um, sorry, it sounded like a straw man, that, but it is, it is up there. You know, with the, yeah. the kind of thing Stratfordians sometimes propose. Bless them. Okay, um, quoting air again, line, uh, page 110. Edward de Vere's brother-in-law, uh, he had a, a, an amazing name. He was called Peregrine Bertie, and he was Baron Willoughby Derrisby. Journeyed to Denmark five times between 1582 and 1585 on official government business. It is recorded in state papers that on one of these visits, he called on Tycho Brahe at the observatory and research institute provided for him by the Danish government. In the course of his ambassadorial duties, Bertie spent many months living in the castle of Elsinore. I also believe that when he was there, he attended banquets attended by the family's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes, indeed. They, they were certainly there. Um, also um, very much uh, involved with uh, our old friend Francis Walsingham. Ah, so uh, whilst there, was, did a bit of spying. Was, uh, was old Peregrine, yeah. yeah. Um, old Mr Bertie yeah. was uh, there involved, although he, um, he did 
play for them himself. Mm. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he, he certainly was involved in a bit of spying as per our old friend, Christopher Marlowe. Absolutely right. And, and, and just on that, Francis Walsingham was always complaining that he had to run the spy network out of his own coffers. Yeah. He did get an annuity from Elizabeth, as I understand it. Devere got a £1,000 annuity from the 1590s on. Um, and, and there's the opening to the Baconians because, of course, there's that theory that there was a group of people involved in producing yep. these plays. Uh, the Baconians think it's Francis Bacon and the Good Pens. Um, uh, War et al. would simply posit that the Good Pens were led by Devere, but hey-ho. But, um, yeah, so somebody paying for ambassadorial trips and whatnot out of their own purse is of a keeping with the kind of uh, parsimonious nature that we um, often hear uh, ascribed to Elizabeth. I mean, that's how you retain wealth as a monarch, right? You don't spend things unless you have to. I mean, it's how you retain wealth as anyone. Absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. To be fair. So, yeah, to be fair. I mean, that's just good housekeeping. Isn't yeah. It? Especially if the house is also England. Yes. Um, okay. Point 20. We're just flying today. Yeah. Um, point 21 is really exciting, so get ready. Okay. Um, <laughs> Gird your loins. <laughs> Lloyd Gurnage. Um, point 20, uh, quoting uh, page 111. <clears throat> Pardon, gentles all. The French essayist Michel de Montaigne is agreed to have been widely quoted in Hamlet and also in King Lear. His essais, or essays, were published in French between 1580 and 88, long before John Florio's English translation of 1603. And this is something else involving De Vere and Hamlet that's really spicy, which is everybody knows that one of the source texts for Hamlet is Saxo Grammaticus. Um, you know, uh, whatever it is, doings of the Danes or... Anyway, the Danish um, uh, chronicles. But there was also, or there is also as a source text, a book by Belforest called Histoire Tragique, Tragic Stories. Um, deeds of the Danes. Deeds of uh, the Danes. Gesta Danorum. That's what I was reaching for, uh, deeds. Um, yeah, so this other source text for Hamlet wasn't translated into English either, um, which once again is why I think our Stratfordian... Uh, buddies are constantly pushing back dates of composition mm. um, not because the evidence takes them there literally because they want the evidence such as it is to fit their chronology so mm. that's kind of interesting and by the way um, the Bell Forest the Hollins Head and the Saxo were all in William Cecil's library uh, in London uh, I've forgotten his house now what was his house called? Was it Chumley's or something? Or Chudley? Or... Anyway uh, no. Chadley. Um... Uh, Tibbles wasn't it? Tibbles? Yeah, Tibbles. There you go. Uh, Cecil's house. Yeah. So, I mean, we certainly know that Hamlet forward slash Devere liked to read. Yeah. And had hundreds of books dedicated to him in his lifetime, yeah. including the next one. Right. This is the biggie, I reckon. Okay, point 21. Uh, quoting uh, air page 111 again, Harold Jenkins, a critic, identified Cardanus Comforte by Gerolamo Cardano, uh, 1573, he was a mathematician and philosopher. I'll read that again. Harold Jenkins identified Cardanus Comforte by Geralomo Cardano as a source for the to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy. Edward de Vere commissioned Thomas Bedingfield to provide a translation of this book from the Italian, end quotation. Okay, so the Cardanus Comforte text by Cardano... Um, is a, a, a text on the subject of the contemplative life, this idea of st uh, st uh, stoic or stoic, pardon me, uh, fortitude. 
um, which is pretty much the theme of the To Be or Not To Be soliloquy. Mm. Um, and yeah, th- this this book, Cardano's Conforte, was identified as Hamlet's book by orthodox scholars, for example, Joseph Hunter, as early as 1845. Mm. And I think that's... It's a bit like knowing what... Um, uh, What's-his-face yellow book is... Um, I'll get to it. Wait for it. Is Dorian it? Gray's. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, Dorian reads this book in, in, in the book of the same name, and people have identified his yellow book as a book by a person I can't remember right now, but it's very influential. Um, and just just as a whiff of this, you know, like a whiff of the potency of this argument. Uh, Generally agreed to be Hoisman's Arabu. Arabu, yeah, that. Exactly. That's what I meant, yeah. So in the same way that we know what um, Dorian Gray was reading, we know what Hamlet was reading. Um, and an Orthodox scholar, once again, thank you, Orthodox community, has provided that juicy detail. Thanks, Stratfordians, for debunking your own evidence <laughs> once again. So gracious of you. You are good people. Um, so um, I, I, last time we recorded this, I finished on this, but it just depends how, how, how much more you think I'll deal uh, with We've got story. another um, probably five minutes. Right, okay. So here's the Cardanus. Um, here's a quote from the Cardanus Conforte text followed by Hamlet in his To Be or Not To Be soliloquy monologue speech, the most famous in world literature, okay? So this is the Cardanus text. In Holy Scripture, death is not accounted other than sleep, and to die is said to sleep. Better to follow the counsel of Agathius, who right well commended death, saying that it did not only remove sickness and all of the grief, but also when all of the discommodities of life did happen to man often, it never would come more, uh, come more than once. Seeing therefore with such ease men die, what should we account of death to be resembled to anything better than sleep? Most assured it is that such sleep be most sweet as be most sound, for those are the best wherein, like unto dead men, we dream nothing. The broken sleeps, the slumber, the dreams full of visions are commonly in them that have weak and sickly bodies. And Hamlet saith, to die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, it is a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There you go. So we seem to have a source text for that speech, and it happens to be in a translation of a book that was commissioned by and dedicated to William, no, Edward de Vere. Well, shocking. Um, and, and you obviously explained the changes just as putting it into meter and making it fit yep. the, the scene better, but it's, it's pretty clear mm. that that's one and the same text. Um, yep. I, I would like anyone to come and argue that it isn't. Mm-hmm. You might argue that just because de Vere commissioned and had the book dedicated to him, mm. that he didn't necessarily write the speech that came from it. Mm. But you, I think it's quite a difficult thing to, to contend, in my opinion. And that, that, that I, th- I believe the Cardanus Conforte text uh, is 1573. So again, we're back to the 1570s for mm. at least some of the source text and probably the composition of the play. So, you know, and that would also tie in with Bertie's peregrinations. Yes, or, indeed. Peregrine's peregrinations. Uh, to the Danish court, he, yeah, he spent some time. He was even um, he was um, he ruled part of uh, Denmark as well. He he was um, certainly in court part of, for quite a while out there. So uh, and spent time in the Netherlands. Um, 
as well, um, as well as contacting uh, Poland. So ah, Poland also referenced in the text. Yeah, um, almost as if he knew what was going on politically in the area. Yeah, and may have reported it to someone that he knew. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, M- maybe a guy who dealt in malt in yeah. Uh, Warwickshire. Yeah, I mean that yeah. would make sense. You would immediately write to your malt dealer friend in Warwickshire if you about the political machinations of Denmark. I, I would. I don't. I don't see anything untoward. I mean, you know. No, I've, I've there, got... there are more things on heaven and on earth than a drunk to have in your philosophy, Julian. Well, you're not wrong. <laughs> um, okay, we will have to uh, move on to our closing um, things and such now. That sounded really professional. I'm really pleased with that. Nice segue. Um, yeah, it's a good segue. Um, okay, thank you, as ever, uh, for listening. Um, if you are interested in being in Strat Fraud, please do be in touch. Uh, as we said last week, um, listen to last week's episode if you don't know what I'm talking about. Mm. Um, please do get in touch with anything, any corrections, any additions you'd like to make. We love them. We love hearing from you. Um, I try to reply to every email that I get either by email or on the podcast um, and every contact on Twitter. So we we really do appreciate your listening and your sharing the podcast and everything else. Um, You can find me on Twitter at God of Chicken. Um, I'm AQ-Anon. And then some numbers. And then the random numbers that I never remember. But I think I'm the only AQ and on out there. And just, yeah. just another kind of shout out and thank you to Kate Cassidy, uh, who said, potentially the Twitter algorithm hides me because it says, you know, Q and on. That's the reason why I chose the name, because it's funny and it's a riff on that. I'm not actually a Q and on truther. Uh, and I just don't want to change my name for various reasons. Uh, so, yeah, have a dig around. I'm the only person there. And do do feel free to share my contents with the people you know. I'm not a conspiracy nut, <laughs> probably. Uh, it, he says on a podcast about the awesome question of Shakespeare. <laughs> we're not the only AQ uh, podcast, are we? There are others out there. No. Um, so, yeah, if you find me on, on the Twitter, then uh, look for where I've posted the podcast and uh, I will have tagged uh, Dr. Taylor in it as well. Um, thank you once again for listening. Our email address, if you want to get in touch via email, is muchadoaboutTheAQ at gmail.com with no spaces in it. And um, if all goes well and the world doesn't end and we don't get snowed under with far too much work, then uh, we shall return next week with more uh, Edward Devere. Um, are you going to ring the bell? <clears throat> um, I will ring the bell just to say we are up to point 22 of 31 when we reconvene. So in some small way, we are nearing a conclusion.